0: Why do you love the things that you love? Have you thought of that? Why is it that you love what you love? And is it is what you love merely subjective? Is it just based on your own preferences? Steve Jobs, the creator of the iPhone and, and Apple, famously said, People don't know what they want until you show it to them. Uh, he was very shrewd businessman. You see, advertising often shapes our desires. We often don't know that we want something until we see an advertising, advertisement of it, right? And often they embed whatever they're trying to sell in a story. And they paint a picture of the good life. And they say that if you have this car, then you'll also have this wife and these well-behaved children and this job, and you'll be successful as long as you have this BMW. And on and on. If you wash your clothes with gain, then you'll actually enjoy your children. Advertising shapes our desires. By stories and songs and jingles, we are reminded of the things that we should want. And so does the Scriptures. They embed the things that we are to love in stories, shaping our desires by showing us what to love and what to hate. And singing the Psalms is the same way. In singing the Psalms, we learn what it is To embody faithfulness to God by loving what he loves and hating what he hates. By singing Psalm 5 in particular, we get a picture of what God hates because the psalmist draws our attention to it. And he sets himself apart by distinguishing himself from the wicked, from those that God hates. Psalm 5 mimics Psalm 1, but in the form of a lament. We are taught to avoid the path of the wicked by seeing the traits of the wicked in light of who God is. All while learning to frame our distress over the wicked in a plea for God to judge them on the basis of his character. So if you have a bulletin or your Bible, let's turn together to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm 5, we'll read together. This is God's Word. To the choirmaster for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning. You hear my voice in the morning. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I... Through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, Father, that you have included us among the righteous, and we pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts that covenant-keeping love that comes from those who rejoice with what you love and hate with what you hate. Draw our hearts to see these things and to live into them, for we pray them in Jesus' strong name, and amen. Amen. This text it naturally breaks down into five parts, beginning first with a, a threefold petition of the psalmist for the Lord to hear him. Give ear to my words, consider, give attention to the sound of my cry. Three times the psalmist pleads with the Lord to hear his prayer. And then, in following this, is a clear outline of what God hates the wicked in verses. 4 through 6. And the psalmist differentiates himself from this group and confesses his own innocence in verses 7 through 8. And that's an interesting thread that we're going to talk some more about in a moment. He then returns to outline the plight of the wicked. What happens to the wicked? The outcome of all those who God hates or who do what God hates. And the psalm ends with a confident confession of faith with assurance of God's favor. Resting on the righteous, in verses 11 through 12. And the the setting here, we are to imagine, is morning prayer. Now remember, all the psalms are to be sung in the corporate worship of God's people. But they have settings. They come out of a situation. This one doesn't tell us in the title. It just says, A Psalm of David. Now that may be it was written by David. Or it may be that uh, it is a psalm in the style of how David wrote. Uh, We're not exactly sure. We know that David wrote many of the Psalms, but other than that, it doesn't give us the setting. It doesn't tell us what situation this comes out of. We can draw some from the text itself. But this Psalm comes, it says, in the morning. Verse 3, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. Now that, that term in the Hebrew is I arrange things before you. Now, we can we can imagine them arranging the sacrifice, the pieces of the animal on the altar, but you could just as easily imagine him arranging this psalm and its poetic expression to God. In the morning. So the, the setting for this is morning worship. The psalmist is coming before the Lord each morning to lift up his heart to God in praise. And as we sing this psalm, we're reminded How our mourning should begin. Lifting up our own concerns to the Lord. Crying out to Him. Give ear to my words. Consider my groanings. That is the words that we don't have words for. That is the sounds because we can't think of what to say. Paul refers to that. And the Spirit gives us those groanings. And he interprets them to the Lord. So we should be, as we sing this, we're reminded of the importance of morning worship. And I I also want to explain the distinction that the psalmist throughout the psalms makes between the righteous and the wicked. Now we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. But it's important for us to keep in mind that this is a psalm that is set to be sung on the stage In Jerusalem at the church. This is not composed for a a Philistine stage or an Egyptian stage. The psalmist is not addressing the wicked of the nations out there. It's very easy for us to point fingers at the world around us and say, look at them. They're wicked. Of course they're wicked. But the psalmist is pointing a finger at you. Because Among the people of God, there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And it's not about whether you were circumcised or whether you were baptized. It's whether your heart was circumcised. It's whether you obey the Lord from the heart. It's whether you're a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker. And I want you to keep that distinction in mind as we look at what it is that separates the righteous from the wicked. What separates those two within the people of God? It's not their baptism. What separates the righteous from the wicked is that they love what God loves and they hate what God hates. Aligning ourselves so that we begin to desire the things that God desires, so that we love what He loves, that's called conforming us to Christ. And that's what this psalm is doing. When we sing this, we not only confess that we believe this is what God loves and this is what God hates, but it shapes our desires. And I also want to explain one other thing. This happens repeatedly throughout the psalms where the psalmist will declare himself innocent. Sometimes it seems way too bold for us to ever pray anything like that. But I want you to notice verse 7. In verse 7 he says, but I, but I is important because it sets up a distinction between the behavior of the wicked doing those things that God hates and the behavior of the psalmist. He says, but I I'm not like them because I have distinguished myself from them. But I but then he says through the abundance of your steadfast love and that's Chesed, that steadfast love, is God's covenant-keeping love. It's his promise that endures despite anything. It's when he promised to Abraham and he swore by himself that he would accomplish that promise. Nothing could get in the way of him keeping covenant with Abraham. That's his steadfast love. It's a love that endures everything. And that is what draws the righteous in. That's what you could say makes him righteous. This we call the indicatives of the gospel. The promise that in Christ you have been declared not guilty. What is that? What does it mean to have that declaration said of you, of me? What does it mean when God says not guilty? It means what Paul says in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. So when the psalmist says, but I, I am included with the righteous, he's not saying that he's included in the righteous because of his righteous deeds. He's not saying somehow I have made myself not guilty. That somehow I've been able to pull myself up by my bootstraps, live a moral and upright life by loving what God loves and hating what he loves. That's not what he says. What he says is, your covenant-keeping love has made me a part of the righteous. You have declared me to be in the right. And that's what makes me righteous. And What makes the wicked the wicked is that God has not declared that of them. I want you to keep that distinction in mind when we talk about things confessing their innocence. Because you can make that same confession. You can say with Paul, there is no more condemnation against me. Paul can say, I don't know of anything that's wrong in me. But that doesn't matter. I'm not my own judge. God has judged me righteous. So we can confess statements like declarations of innocence because God has indeed declared that you are righteous. He has declared... He, you are righteous because He has made you righteous. Not because you come to church on Sunday and you sit in the pew and you dress up and you wear a tie and, and you do all the right good church things. No, but because God has spoken and He has declared that you are righteous. That's what includes you. So singing this psalm, it causes us to reflect Do I love God from the heart? Am I a covenant keeper? Or am I merely baptized? But I live as a covenant breaker. What separates the righteous from the wicked is that they hate what God hates. Do you hate what God hates? What Notice in verse 5. The psalmist says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Is this even consistent with the Christian faith? I thought we weren't supposed to hate. Jesus says, if you have hate in your heart, it's like you're murdering your brother. And we, we often use that term flippantly, right? We, oh, I hate McDonald's. Whatever it is, it's, it's usually insignificant, but we use strong language i hate but the lord hates the wicked evil doers can we align ourselves with with that kind of hatred yes but it's complicated why why is it complicated well often because we struggle to determine what is evil doers Usually we define evildoers in somebody who's doing something I don't like. But that's not always the case. You see, we, we struggle because our culture is constantly telling us what Isaiah says in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, our culture is constantly trying to redefine what God loves and what God hates. We're in the middle of that battle over sexual ethics right now. As our culture is saying, no, no, it's good if you love that person and they consent, it's okay. It doesn't matter, you can use your body for anything you want. It's Plato. just mold it however you like. And God says, no. It's not Plato. It was made for one function, and that's to glorify me. And you can't use it for your own ends. But our culture is constantly trying to redefine what God calls good. And we get sucked into that. So can we hate what God hates? We should, and we must. But we have to be careful. We need to make sure that it is It is what God hates and what God loves. What then does God hate? We have general descriptions such as wickedness, evil, evildoers, the rebellious, transgressors. These are just broad terms describing evil. And then you have specific examples which largely revolve around speech. And that makes sense. Because our Lord said in Matthew 5 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It's what comes out of your mouth, not what goes in. It's out of the heart. And so the psalmist singles out specific speech acts that characterize the wicked. The boastful. Those who speak lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. It's lies. And it's not just any lies. It's lies that are just designed to destroy somebody. And that is because the wicked are bloodthirsty, meaning they're violent men who will use murder to accomplish their purposes. Notice the description in verse 9. And this, this note from the, the uh, New English Translation Bibles captures it very well. It says, the description of the wicked in verse 9 are compared to the realm of death, Sheol, in verses 9. Sheol was envisioned as a dark region within the earth the entrance to which was the grave with its steep slopes that led down. And the enemy's victims are pictured here as slipping down a steep slope, the enemy's tongues, and falling into an open grave, their throat, that terminates in destruction in the inner recesses of Sheol, their stomach. The enemy's inward parts refer here to their thoughts and motives which are destructive in their intent. The throat is where these destructive thoughts are transformed into words, and their tongue is what they use to speak the deceitful words that lead their innocent victims to their demise. The psalmist is giving us a picture of, of how the righteous are destroyed by the wicked. They use their tongue, right? Their mouth. Is open. There's no truth in it. Their inmost self. That's their their inner thoughts and desires. It's destructive. Their throat is the grave that sucks you in. They flatter with their tongues. Right? Flattery being designed to trap you. With smooth and seductive words. But drawing you in to destroy you. Does this describe... An actual enemy? Is, is David referring to someone specific in his life or, or just the wicked in general? I and mean, it's easy to think about the situations that David faced. Saul, in particular, spread lies and falsehoods about David, claiming that David was trying to kill him. So that he pursued him with the whole army. One man. David said, "If you come out as, as after a dog? Saul had convinced all of Israel that David was the murderous one through his lies. Maybe it was Saul. I don't think it's important because we're, we're thinking about the wicked in general. Because we're singing the psalm, we're having what we hate shaped by the word of God. So that we come to hate the things that God hates. Socrates, in one of his earlier dialogues, is not satisfied with Euthyphro's definition of what is good. Euthyphro had defined the good as what is good to the gods, what is dear to the gods, and what is bad as what is not dear to them. But Socrates was not satisfied with this definition arguing that it's circular. He asked Euthyphro whether the gods love something because it's good, or whether something is good because the gods love it. Socrates countered that moral concepts must be grounded in reason, not just in the desires of the gods. In some ways, Socrates is right. For what God hates is not morally wrong just because he says it is, or because he hates it. It is morally wrong because it is contrary to who he is. In his very character. God doesn't like something because it's good. He is goodness itself. And because of who he is, that makes that thing good. The truth, for instance, is good because God is true. And lying is something that God hates because it's contrary to his very character. These are not arbitrary standards. They're not something that just is made up and can be culturally shifted and changed. It. They are based on who God is. They're unchangeable. The psalmist says in verse 4, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Our notions of what is right and wrong, which God has revealed to us in His Word, in His standards... And the Ten Commandments are not abstract commands. They're not just something that he just thought up and he thought this would, this would be good. These are good things. I think they're good. They arise from who he is, his very character. So how do we hate what God hates? First, by rehearsing what he hates. That is the point of singing the Psalms. We remind ourselves God hates it when I I don't speak the truth. The psalmist is not reminding God of something he may have forgotten. God doesn't need to be reminded that he hates evil. He knows he hates evil. God doesn't need to be reminded that he doesn't delight in wickedness. You need to be reminded of that. So that you turn from those things and they don't characterize you. He's reminding his audience who is joining and singing with him what they might have forgotten. And that way the psalm sort of rehabituates our moral imagination. Just like the advertising does. It shapes what you want. You you get a picture of the good life and then you want that. That's what the psalm is trying to do. It's trying to shape your moral imagination so that you love the truth and hate lies. theologian John Frame remarked, It's strange as it may sound. We do have a responsibility to cultivate the hatred of evil. In an age that takes the vilest behavior for granted, we are called to hate what God hates as to love what God loves. Holy hatred and holy love are inseparable. If we love God, we will join Him in His hatreds, both in our actions and in our feelings. So godly hatred, like godly love, is a virtue, and both serve as motives for Christian ethics." Second, we hate what God hates by turning from those things and embracing what God loves. We do the opposite. We hate what God hates by loving what he loves, which is, is exactly where the psalmist turns next. The righteous is separated from the wicked not merely by seeing and avoiding what God hates, but also by cultivating and the discipline of seeing and embodying what God loves. And these we can reduce to two basic tenets worship and discipleship. And I want to show you how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of loving what God loves. Remember, the psalmist draws a sharp distinction in verse 7. But I, that is, I am not characterized like these wicked people. And we already talked about his confidence comes because God has declared him righteous. Not because he's earned that by his moral uprightness, but because God has imputed that righteousness to him. And then the language of entering his house and, and bowing down towards his holy temple, and fearing the Lord is all emblematic of worship. It's all the language of worship. The first principle of loving what God loves is to love God himself. If love is a feeling of deepest affection, then it stands to reason that, that an infinite lover like God needs an infinite object to express that deepest affection upon since there is no other infinite being worthy of such love except God Himself, God's love finds its fullest expression in His infinite love for Himself. God loves Himself more than anything else, and that's not egotistical. God is an infinite being, and He has infinite love, and no finite creature could ever match that. Jonathan Edwards. In a very famous discourse concerning the end for which God created the world, he said, quote, "...in God, the love of what is fit and decent, or the love of virtue, can't be a distinct thing from the love of himself. Because the love of God is that wherein all virtue and holiness does primarily and chiefly consist. And God's own holiness must primarily consist in the love of himself." as was before observed. And if God's holiness consists in love to himself, then it will imply an approbation of and pleasedness with the esteem and love of him in others. For a being that loves himself necessarily loves love to himself. If holiness in God consists chiefly in love to himself, holiness in the creature must chiefly consist in love to him. And if God loves holiness in himself, he must love it in the creature, end quote. Now, Jonathan Edwards can be difficult to understand, but what he's saying is that if God infinitely loves himself, and the virtue of holiness is love for himself, so that when we love him, we are fulfilling that. We're making that full. Because God perfectly loves himself, We enter into that love by our own love for Him. But this becomes tangible in the love that the Father has for His Son. The love that uh, He expresses in sending His Son to redeem the world from sin. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit exist in a perfect community of love for all of eternity. They have no need apart from each other. There was no lack in them that caused them to create the world. They don't need your love. They don't need anything from you. They exist in perfect love and communion together. And out of that love, you could say because there was so much love, they created the world. They created us. And so worship is our response to that loving creator God who has made us and then redeemed us from sin. It is, it is in worship that we express our love for God. And I don't mean the two hours on Sunday morning. That's not what I'm talking about. Worship is much more than that. It's not less than that, but it's much more. Worship is a posture. It's a disposition of your heart. It's a recognition that you are not God and, oh, and must give obedience and Allegiance to him alone. As the psalmist says in verse 11, those who love your name exult in you. That is, our highest joy is to love God. Or better, we find the greatest joy when we love God. Integrating what we learned about the infinite love of God that he has for himself, which is seen by us in its fullest expression in the love that the Father has for the Son. And the love the Son has for the Father, the bond of which is the Holy Spirit. And out of that overflow of the Trinitarian love, that comes our salvation. The Father in love sends His beloved Son to be Savior of the world. And the Son comes in the greatest act of love to lay down His life as a ransom for sin. Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So our worship of God properly is Christ-centered only when it's suffused with His person and work. Worship orientates us to love what God loves chiefly by teaching us to love God Himself. And that disposition to worship carries forth in an ongoing covenant relationship which we call discipleship. Following Christ is the path to loving what God loves. See, the beginning of our worship is the fear of the Lord, recognizing who he is, that he is love in himself, and we love him by worshiping him. Discipleship is is being led on the straight path of righteousness. Notice in the psalmist in verse 8 says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Discipleship is the process of loving what God loves, which we call sanctification. We can explain this in terms of adoption. Think about someone who is adopted. They're brought into the family and they live with them. And what happens after a while is that they begin to resemble the family. They begin to look like the family, right? Because Bradleys, we have a certain way of being in the world. And you can can tell Bradleys from other people, right? Just like we can tell your family because there is family resemblance. Not only do we look alike, but we do similar things. We laugh at the same jokes. We like some of the same things. That is family resemblance. When God adopts you into his family, he doesn't say just stay how you were. Just, yeah, just keep living like you were before. He says, you're a part of my family. I put my name on you. You need to look like my family. And my family looks like Christ. You are to become like little Christs, little sons of God, walking and living as the family looks. That's the process of sanctification, conforming you to Christ. That's the process of learning to love what God loves. That's discipleship. Psalm 5 is a lament because it pleads with God to visit His judgment on the wicked, on the things that He hates. But that prayer is also for God to consider the righteous and to keep them from becoming like the wicked. What differentiates the wicked from the righteous? It's not anything intrinsic to them. It's not based on who they are. It's based upon God and His Steadfast love. But I, verse 7, through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. It is because of God's steadfast love that the psalmist worships Him. And it is God's ongoing covenant faithfulness that preserves Him in discipleship. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way. Make your path. Make the path of the righteous straight before me. God's steadfast love enables the psalmist to continue in his discipleship. Then it's equally the hand of God that all others are also classed with the wicked. Right, It's it's that God gives them over to the path that they already are walking on. Then continue on it. Romans 1 is instructive there. And so the psalmist cries out to the Lord Don't let me become like them. Don't, because I need you to keep me on the path. Because I know that on my own I would be with them. I would be. Hating the things that you love and loving the things that you hate. Were it not for your steadfast love. And the path is obviously metaphorical for the way one lives. In the early church, the church was called the way. That was largely because they were outlining the way of salvation through Jesus Christ only. He's the way. But but it also, it's a pattern of living. Jesus says, follow me. Walk like I walked. Take up your cross and die every day. That's the path. That's the way to loving what God loves and hating what he hates. And I I know for me, when I hear the psalmist cry out for protection in verses 11 through 12, pleading for refuge, my mind immediately goes to physical enemies. And that's true but it's, it's incomplete. The refuge that we seek in God is not merely from physical enemies, but from the greatest of all enemies, sin and death. We find refuge in Christ when He spreads His protection over us in the form of His imputed right, righteousness. When in Him we are safe from the dread judgment for sin, the eternal wrath of God and death. The psalmist calls all To join in exulting in the Lord because He has blessed us by covering us with His favor. And if you believe that, you can encounter anything in this life and not be moved. Because your confidence comes from the steadfast love of the Lord. The assurance of which rises to the surface when you sing this psalm. When you sing this psalm, your confidence is growing because you know, "I, I... I'm the one that's been drawn by his steadfast love. I'm the one that he has spread his protection over me. I'm the one that he has covered with favor as with a shield. And our assurance and our confidence grows as we, as we sing it. For we take the stance of the righteous to hate what God hates and love what he loves. And you express your own confidence. You can say it, as David did in the beginning, my King and my God. You express that He is yours because you are in that kind of relationship. And you remind yourself of God's character so that you remember the sinfulness of sin and all of its ruinous consequences. As the singing of this psalm draws to a close, you are assured that the righteous will be safe from bearing their own guilt or falling by their own counsels or being cast out because of the abundance of their transgressions. But instead of rebelling against God, they love and take refuge in Him. For loving what God loves and hating what He hates is its own benediction and what separates the righteous from the wicked. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so prone to wander. And as we hear this psalm, as we're reminded, Father, of what you love and what you hate, draw us in to embody these truths. Father, that we would love what you love. That we would be characterized By loving what you love and hating what you hate. That when people see us, they would respond asking us for the reason of the hope that is in us, as Peter said. That they would ask us, why do you live like this? And we would point to you. And we would say, because I love what God loves and I hate what he hates. And may we have that unbending confidence to stand in the face of evil and call you to judge the wicked. And Father, to preserve us, to keep us from the path of the wicked, to keep us devoted to you in worship and discipleship and fleeing, running from lies, from destructive tendencies of our tongue. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And amen. Having heard much of what God hates, we come now to a table to see